Welcome back to CRIM 411. This is Dr. David White, Ferris State University, uh, for Crime Control Policy. In this episode, we're on to Lesson 3, uh, the goals of the criminal justice system, right? Goals of criminal justice policy. So uh, we too often start to solve problems without considering our goals. That is to say, what outcomes do we want to achieve? In criminal justice, public pressure and social forces tend to take shape in such a way that they demand action, uh, but little attention sometimes given to defining or clarifying goals. In other situations, and this is common in criminal justice, there are competing interests and competing ideas about what should be accomplished and how agents should go about the work. It, is simple enough to recognize that criminal justice policy and criminal justice work is a political issue. By saying something's political, we are implying that it is naturally something that we must debate uh, or be debated, it must be negotiated, and that there are competing interests. The underlying assumption of many people, particularly within criminal justice, is that society expects and therefore uh, strictly measures the success of police, courts, and corrections by their ability to control and prevent crime. Because the institution of criminal justice is created uh, to control crime, it's an easy assumption to make, but the reality is that society does not expect, nor would they probably tolerate, the full maximum enforcement of the law. In a totalitarian society, uh, the state's very free to use whatever levels of force necessary to control the population, but in more democratic societies, we want to find a balance between government's exercise of power and those individual liberties, and we tend to take a more relaxed approach uh, to enforcement of the law. Generally speaking, we are good with fuller enforcement of the law when we are personally not the target of the state's attention, mind you, uh, but when we are the one likely to get caught and punished, uh, we would like a softer approach. In this way, the maximum efficiency of the criminal justice system, by most accounts, would equate uh, to some degree to uh, maximum tyranny. Society, therefore, expects something less than full enforcement of the law, and thus uh, the belief that our success in criminal justice based solely on the goal of completely controlling or preventing crime is just simply not true. Furthermore, uh, it's terribly short-sighted to consider criminal justice policy without considering public policy more generally, uh, as I'll explain a little in, in more detail here in just a moment. But, uh, uh, but we have to consider all of the consequences surrounding uh, the use of certain policies or strategies in criminal justice in our effort to control and prevent crime as they relate to more general social consequences. Uh, so what does society want? Well, I will start with a general discussion of public policy and work towards more specific, specific objectives of criminal justice policies. The sovereign authority of any state, uh, what I will refer to as the power of the state, is contingent on and harnessed by the state's basic ability to control uh, and care for the population. Regardless of the type of governance, uh, this responsibility requires power holders uh, to properly manage aspects of daily life, protecting uh, protection against external threats, that is the ability to prevent hostile invasion, i.e., uh, or in other words, uh, the ability to wage war. Right? That's one of the basic foundations here. 
Next is the protection against scarcity, uh, scarcity of resources. That is the ability to prevent famine, uh, to create stability in economic relations. That is the ability to manage uh, and control labor markets, the exchange of commodities, and so forth. Next is the uh, ability to provide for the common health and wealth, right? To provide for that basic commonwealth uh, involves health, welfare, education, and of course to provide security and safety for the masses. Uh, to manage these responsibilities, state power holders require both uh, what I will refer to as instrumental legitimacy and normative legitimacy. And so normative legitimacy is a citizen's normative belief that, society, that uh, the state authority is legitimate and as such should be supported, deferred to, and respected. That is to say, I accept the will uh, uh, and authority of the state because I believe that it's in my interest to do so, to accept that authority. To the extent that the state takes care of people's needs, uh, the state's decisions are often seen as fair, and just, necessary, and so forth. Uh, and they tend to enjoy good normative support or normative legitimacy. However, uh, in addition to maintaining normative legitimacy, the state power also requires instrumental legitimacy, uh, which is based not on citizens' normative acceptance of the state's authority, uh, mind you, but instead in the ways that their power is formally constituted and institutionalized. That is to say, the, the state is positioned uh, to exercise its legitimate power in coercive ways that compel action if necessary. For example, many people may question the authority of law enforcement to use force against uh, citizens, uh, that is, questions of their normative legitimacy. But the fact remains that law enforcement has the legal authority and nearly the exclusive right to use physical force against citizens, including deadly physical force, if necessary. This power, which is carefully defined by the limits of the law, all the same is instrumentally afforded to them through the power of the law. Society arms them and grants them the authority, uh, and so therefore they are instrumentally legitimate. In non-democratic societies, the reliance is really more on the state's instrumental legitimacy, on their power to exercise, or their authority to exercise their power, uh, regardless of public support. Uh, uh, but in democratic societies such as ours, political leaders must define a more balanced approach that relies not strictly on instrumental authority, but on normative legitimacy. In other words, we want people to accept the decisions and recognize our authority when exercised without an over-reliance on coercion. Uh, this is particularly important in criminal justice policy, where we have previously acknowledged the need for the vast majority of citizens to normatively accept the law, not to attempt to break it. At best, police officers to citizen ratios in this country are about 2.5 to, to officers per 1,000 citizens. Um, and even though we have the highest, one of the highest incarceration rates uh, in the world, in a democratic society certainly, uh, at 700 or around 700 per 100,000 people behind bars, um, that still means that less than 1% of the population is behind bars. And so uh, we need most people to naturally conform to the law in a normative sense. When citizens challenge the legitimate power of the state, when they rise up and they object uh, to, states, to the state's authority, uh, state power holders are left to take one of two courses of action. First, if the state's authority is challenged, they can double down uh, on using their institutionalized 
power to coercively combat the uprising. Simply put, they can increase force. Uh, the state as the power holder can increase forms of legitimized power through organized coercion, such as increasing police forces or other forms of suppression. This can be framed again as, that's, as the state's instrumental legitimacy. The second option, though, is for the state uh, to renegotiate their power claim, to seek a more amicable solution that relies on mutual dialogue with citizens and not on coercion. Again, this is more frequently uh, the case in democratic societies once social movement uh, movements uh, pick up enough momentum to create social change, and so state uh, is then in a position to ha likely have to renegotiate power claims. Ideally, we would like to find a nice healthy balance between instrumental legitimacy and normative legitimacy. In criminal justice, if the system had no instrumental legitimacy, uh, would anyone respect officers of the law? However, if criminal justice agents have such a high reliance, a high, high levels of instrumental legitimacy, that people uh, feel like they are too powerful, too oppressive, um, that exercise of power then hurts citizens' willingness to normatively accept their authority. In totalitarian societies, the reliance on instrumental power is, of course, high. If uh, it, it's effective at controlling the masses, but it's costly. In democratic societies, we are left to find uh, and maintain a balance of instrumental and normative legitimacy that's not really necessarily clear, it's sort of illusory. Uh, and it, it is a balance, though, uh, between these two forces, and that balance ebbs and flows over time. At times, more power is granted to criminal justice, uh, and so increases in their authority. And at times, we see society moving to minimize the power of criminal justice agents. Uh, Max Weber, a German uh, sociologist, political philosopher, active in the early uh, to mid-20th century, uh, emphasized the fact that the law, in order to maintain normative legitimacy, uh, must maintain a sense of rationality. Public policies, both in criminal justice and public policy more generally, uh, must be seen as rational by most people. To the extent that they view it as rational, they uh, will uh, be seen as legitimate. And when public perception is that the law is not or does not seem rational, then the legitimacy of the law then, then is questioned. So Weber, of course, recognized that the law uh, then finds this balance between uh, maintaining its legitimacy and maintaining its sense of rationality. Uh, but in order to maintain its legitimacy, also recognize that the system had to be bagged by organized coercion. Uh, and the criminal justice apparatus uh, is an institution, is by its nature, that mechanism of organized coercion for society. And so uh, Weber believed that, that an over-reliance, just as I previously pointed out, the over-reliance on organized coercion is, of course, costly, uh, and it's better to rely on uh, maintaining that rationally constructed policy that's more or less normatively accepted. To summarize and make clear a general point here, full maximum enforcement of the law is, is uh, not only uh, not the goal of the criminal justice system, but uh, it more than likely is not tolerated really in a free society. Criminal justice policies, like all other public policies promulgated by the state, are affirmative statements uh, on the part of the state to ensure the safety and welfare of the population. 
these actionable items on the part of the state require their authority to be both normatively accepted by the wills of the majority and instrumentally supported by institutionalized processes, procedures, and resources. The emphasis should be on maintaining normative legitimacy and using instrumental power judiciously in ways that, or that are consistent with normative expectations of how we use that coercive power. Uh, in criminal justice-specific contexts, an over-reliance on instrumental authority can quickly seem coercive and hurt normative legitimacy. As a result, uh, the maintenance of normative legitimacy calls not only for limiting the reliance on coercive authority, but also on actively trying to build normative support. Greater the normative support, less controversy over instrumental uses of power. As it relates to the criminal law, we find at least three basic reasons for transitioning here into reasons for the law. Uh, first, society uses criminal law to prevent offensive behaviors, things that are generally violate, uh, that generally violate the social contract, urinating in public, drinking and driving, disorderly conduct, and so forth. Second, though, we find uh, the law used to protect society's moral values at least the moral values of the majority, to the extent that the majority maintains not only the majority, but a hegemonic sense of moral value, we can define them as the moral majority. And the use of the law in this way is sometimes referred to as legal moralism, legal moralism. Finally, we find that the law through the power of the moral majority sometimes exercises power in making and enforcing laws that are designated uh, or designed to prevent harm to oneself, such as our approach to criminalizing drug users. This approach is sometimes referred to in the context of legal paternalism. And so, in other words, uh, society uses the law to act in a parental sense. Okay, and so let's turn, though, to some specific goals of criminal justice policy. First, one I want to discuss is crime prevention. To the extent that the criminal justice system can prevent crime, it can also be seen as reducing not only victimization or potential victimization of others, but it can uh, be seen as reducing the cost and burdens of crime on taxpayers. This goal and responsibility most often falls to law enforcement, but any effort that seeks to prevent someone's future involvement in crime also falls into this category. From the law enforcement perspective, this goal is twofold. First, many efforts in crime prevention emphasize the role of education and collaborations. Drug Abuse Resistance Education, or DARE, neighborhood watch programs, meeting uh, with groups of senior citizens to discuss safety. Public service ads against drinking and driving, so forth, these are all examples of education. Second is the idea, though, of preventative patrol uh, or of increased surveillance uh, through camera systems, public spaces, these sort of efforts. Uh, and these efforts are aimed to deter deterring would-be offenders from committing crime uh, are seen as prevention efforts. On a side note here, the fear of crime is as important as crime itself. Uh, crime prevention efforts aimed at reducing the fear of crime, which is analytically distinct from crime, are also important. Research tends to show that people's fear of crime, uh, fear of victimization, uh, is not always consistent with the actual threat with crime numbers or uh, real likelihood of victimization, but all the same a person's perception is their reality to a certain extent, and as such it uh, is perhaps more important 
than the more or less objective reality that is uh, the real numbers or risks. So a person's fear of crime is what often drives their action and supports other perceptions, such as perception of police effectiveness in their community. This recognition should compel criminal justice agents to emphasize the need to work uh, not just on reducing crime, but on addressing the fear of crime. So it's an important uh, thing to think about. We'll talk about safety. Both efforts in uh, crime prevention and in the reduction of fear of crime or victimization, uh, we sort of find a, a goal of involve, uh, improving uh, public safety. And so many of the daily tasks managed by police particularly uh, have very little to do with crime or crime control uh, so much as they do with sort of these general safety issues. Welfare checks on homeless people or elderly folks, uh, setting up roadblocks for flooded streets, blocking traffic from down power lines, uh, responding and helping mentally ill people in crisis, evacuating a neighborhood for a gas leak or responding to another hazardous incident helping document and manage traffic collision scenes. And so these tasks fall under the category of public safety. While they won't be the focus of our, our class on crime control, um, it is important for us to sort of recognize that these tasks uh, require the time and attention of criminal justice agents, and they are an essential part of what society overall expects and demands of the criminal justice system. Criminal justice agents expected to manage these sort of things, and so uh, it is part of how society sees the overall job. Talk about crime control though, uh, crime control in this context are those things that criminal justice agents do to respond, control, reduce, or suppress crime. These strategies are diverse and much of what we will cover this semester will deal with the goals of course of crime control. Strategies invoke law enforcement, the courts, corrections. Some of the strategies uh, we use in criminal justice are very specifically pointed at particular types of crime or particular types of criminals such as sex offenders uh, while other policies take more general approaches. Uh, however, it's important to recognize that when we say crime, uh, we're talking about everything from simple crime such as a petty theft up to homicide. So we must avoid overly relying on this generic term of crime and realize that the most effective crime control policies are those specific solutions focused on specific problems. Again, these are rather discursive and involve all of the sections of the, of the criminal justice system, right? The police, courts, corrections, all at different levels. Next goal to address here is retribution. So when it comes to dealing with crime prevention and control uh, through processes that involve criminals, we generally take stances, uh, or take the stance rather, I should say, that we want to punish the offender. You do the crime, you're going to do the time. The goal here is retribution or uh, retributive and so in some cases referred to as the criminal's just desserts, which is just more or less an old-school way of saying that one gets what uh, they deserve. In a biblical sense, uh, uh, this is the belief in an eye for an eye. We want uh, criminals to suffer for their crimes. Law enforcement has the job of catching criminals, but we look to the courts and ultimately the apparatus of corrections to manage criminals in a way that punishes them. Uh, though society's uh, acceptance of certain amount of uh, street justice will uh, be occasionally dispensed by police, a uh, large segment of society is more or less okay with that. And so, uh, uh, as an aside, in classical rational choice theory, 
in that utilitarian ideal, we find the belief that punishment, of course, must be swift. It must be certain. It must be severe. Uh, it must be severe enough that most people will be deterred. Uh, but it must also be harsh enough that offenders do not want to repeat their mistake. Former refers to general deterrence, of course, and the latter uh, to the issue of specific deterrence. Not the first time you've heard those. Hope you remember them from previous coursework uh, as well as earlier modules. This theme of retribution is both ancient, though, and ever-present in society's treatment of criminals. It's an essential part of what we call justice. And we must not lose sight of the fact that society's use of retribution or punishment extends beyond formal aspects of punishment that's fixed in the criminal justice system. The shame of local news outlets sharing your mugshot, providing the general public with a police report, questions uh, of prior offenses on job applications are ways that uh, we punish and increase society's retribution on individuals who break the law and who violate the social contract. As an aside, one aspect of the criminal uh, was that and has always been that they are not being a productive member of society. And so as such, uh, not contributing, not contributing specifically to the productive labor of society. And so therefore, uh, one of the punishments that has been present since, uh, um, well, it's always been present basically throughout societies, but certainly present through the 1700s, uh, early development of our country in the United States is the use of hard labor. And so in other words, uh, you're lazy, you, you refuse to work, uh, so when incarcerated we will compel you to work and use you to create productive labor for society. These practices were uh, meant not only to sort of reinforce uh, or to enforce rather the prisoner to work, uh, but they're prescribed to be uh, publicly and disgracefully imposed, according to Samuel Walker's book, uh, Popular Justice, uh, from 1998. Think about how we still use this today, though. Prisoners in orange jumpsuits picking up trash on the roadside, uh, working mowing uh, grass, taking care of public parks, making license plates, even furniture and other goods that, uh, of course, offset the cost of prisons to taxpayers. These practices are uh, less public and disgraceful in most cases today, but they are all the same scene, uh, uh, very much uh, the same as they were, right? Much alive in penal practices and still institutionalized in culture where hardworking taxpayers like to see society force the prisoner to work. Some parts of society are more punitive than others. Public opinion polls tend to show that whites, conservatives, and those uh, who have not personally been involved in the criminal justice system tend to take more punitive stances than non-whites, liberals, uh, and those who have had previous contact or involvement in the system. Interestingly, studies concerning punitive attitudes of criminal justice uh, agents, criminal justice students, uh, tend to show that those in and those interested in law enforcement slightly more punitive uh, than those in or interested in other aspects of criminal justice work. However, studies as to whether or not criminal justice students are more punitive than non-majors, right, or is there something about attraction to criminal justice here that separates you as criminal justice students from uh, other folks, uh, those results have been relatively mixed, meaning that there's not been consistent evidence to show that uh, those going in criminal justice are necessarily more punitive than the general public. Moving on here to issue of rehabilitation. 
One of the overarching goals of correctional policy in the U.S. and uh, elsewhere is to keep individual criminals from committing additional offenses. It is in many ways an effort to get the defiant, the deviant, to recognize the, the value of the social contract and comply uh, and conform. In this classical perspective, of course, the swift, certain, severe punishment creates a sense of specific deterrence that punitively encourages the offender uh, to recognize the errors of their ways and see that their crime's not worth repeating. However, this retribution approach uh, shares the stage in correctional policies uh, with rehabilitation and the idea of rehabilitating the criminal offender. Uh, the development of the modern penal system generally reflects a movement away from a strict reliance on harsh punitive approaches uh, that were often cruel and unusual towards a more enlightened approach that emphasizes rehabilitation element. Historically speaking, uh, I am looking back here at the earliest development of America, whereby we see the introduction of the Bill of Rights in 1791, uh, which includes the fundamental right against excessively cruel and unusual punishment. While we take this right for granted today, uh, we must consider why it is significant enough of a political issue uh, in the late uh, 1700s that society had to formally debate and ratify law against such punishment. That should be a clue. Around this same time frame, there was an emergence of uh, much reform that is considered a sort of history in the modern penal system. And this includes the Quakers of Pennsylvania, a religious group that advocated strongly for more humane treatment of prisoners. Quakers are famously associated with the development of the Walnut Street Jail, Philadelphia in 1790. Uh, the Quakers were joined by other religious leaders, mainly Protestant groups, which served as sort of the organizing force behind much of uh, prison reform efforts around this same time frame. Uh, religious instruction, uh, along with isolation and work, was all a central component of prison discipline, according to Walker. Uh, this book in 1998, not our current textbook. Uh, in this era, religion was seen as a strong building block of moral uh, character. And, and in this time frame, uh, the separation of church and state was really just sort of a foreign concept. And, and so those two things were much more married together than they are today. This process meant uh, to not only restore the criminal to society, but of course also able to sort of restore and save their very soul. Uh, although we're more careful in today's society in separating church and state, religious affiliation within many correctional institutions and strategies, that is, quote-unquote, faith-based groups, are still present in modern arrangements. With that said, however, uh, there is a shift here from religious, pastoral sort of care and counseling uh, to um, sort of more uh, psychology-based, the psychologist, the professional uh, modern science of psychology, and uh, serves to help sever that connection between church and state. We talk about the issue or goal of incapacitation around the same time frame, of course, addressed above. Punishment is also generally moving from a very public a spectacle carried out on the body of the condemned uh, through uh, capital or corporal punishment to something that occurred more behind closed doors, behind the secretive and scary walls of the prison generally find this uh, discussion in, in Michel Foucault's 1975 book, Discipline and Punish, the Birth of the Modern Prison System. 
So this shift not only included efforts towards rehabilitation, but with it sort of more a general notion of incapacitation. This concept's rooted heavily, of course, in utilitarian thought as a basic concept of punishment. That is to say, it is in society's interest to completely isolate a prisoner from society in a way that they are simply not able to do any harm. How long can or should we hold someone in prison? Well, it depends on the level of threat they pose to society, does it not? And so uh, why is it that someone who commits a petty street robbery uh, with a gun gets a longer prison sentence than someone who commits a white-collar crime where they've embezzled money from their employer, maybe hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of dollars? Well, the answer is simply very short-sighted and sort of a here-and-now version or orientation of how dangerous someone seems to us, or perhaps they are. So the problem uh, with the incapacitation approach is that it's generally costly, uh, that the offenders may come out more institutionalized in prison life uh, than they were when they went in. That, uh, short of a, a serious efforts towards reform and reintegration, uh, they are not going to be well equipped to return to everyday life outside the prison walls. So that's one of the drawbacks there to incapacitation-related approaches. Again, keep in mind these all sort of blend together. Restoration, and so we look at goals of criminal justice. I, I separate restoration here from rehabilitation. Uh, important, particularly at efforts aimed at rehabilitation, we find this notion of restoration. These processes emerge, though, not only in rehabilitative correctional strategies, but more generally in criminal justice policies, which is why I separate them uh, from the concept of rehabilitation. I'm talking about restorative justice concepts. Restorative justice is the idea that we want uh, to use criminal justice practices not to isolate or ostracize offenders to further, further push them out of society's good graces, but we want to restore them to society and reincorporate them in productive, meaningful ways. So if you remember the social bond or social control theory uh, from previous coursework, it's an important theory to consider when you're addressing restorative justice. So social bond theory focuses on the fact that uh, what keeps people from committing crime is having good, strong social bonds, positive experiences, uh, and positive relationships with pro-social others through attachment, commitment, involvement, and beliefs, as, as Hershey points out in his 1969 work. Uh, if severe punishment, incapacitation, shaming, and so forth, uh, to the extent that these things weaken social bonds, further push criminals away from these relationships, it will serve to increase their capacity to offend. That is, is it doesn't decrease their capacity, it actually might increase their capacity. So instead, we should seek ways that lessen the negative impacts. Labeling theory likewise supports this notion of restorative justice. Uh, because labeling theory suggests that when society gives out negative labels, especially these formal labels, uh, being labeled a criminal, a convicted felon, and so forth, this label is detrimental not only to the individual's self-worth, but it has real consequences which limit their ability to establish legitimate relationships, such as the ability to get a job, and so forth. Restorative concepts often are those that attempt to keep individuals out of the formal criminal justice system. They lessen the centralized power uh, of the usual criminal justice actors to carry out justice, instead giving some of that power back to the community, often through community-based arrangements. 
For example, uh, teen courts allow first-time offenders, low-level uh, juvenile delinquents to be subjected to peer-led trial processes, or we could be talking about drug courts, which use multidisciplinary teams to help keep drug abusers out of jail. Veteran courts that deal with veterans who may be suffering from PTSD after combat. Uh, this list could go on. And so furthermore, uh, many of these efforts towards restorative justice attempt to connect the victim and the offender in such a way that the victim feels more in control of justice. In some cases, the traditional forms uh, of criminal justice that we have separate and give the victims a little voice or control over the outcomes related to their actual case. Uh, that is, society sort of steps in and decides what's just and what's not just uh, about your particular situation when you're the victim, right? And so you don't have that much control over it as a victim. So this sort of restores uh, victims into that position where they're able to have a voice when it comes to what is just. Just to summarize here, hopefully what you see is that these discursive or differing goals of, of justice are basic themes that you will see emerge and manifest in certain modern-day criminal justice policies and uh, that are they're not mutually exclusive, uh, meaning that they uh, often overlap and intertwine with one another, and they're not exhaustive in that I have not fully accounted for all goals and strategies that are competing for attention in criminal justice policy. However, this is meant to be a starting point for our exploration of crime control policies. Our journey this semester through Dr. Samuel Walker's book, Sense and Nonsense About Crime, Drugs, and Communities, will reinforce these basic concepts and demonstrate to you in more specific ways um, how we see them play out in public policy. That's all for this lesson. Until next time, uh, if you have any questions, uh, let me know.